Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to Stages. Simon Gallagher came to national prominence as the ebullient piano man making regular appearances on The Mike Walsh Show. The engagement came after recognition in a song competition, which also garnered Simon a recording contract. His masterful ability to engage an audience through song was launched, and so began his career as an entertainer, through musical theatre, television, concert performance and composition. Gallagher's charm and talent also saw him hosting his own nighttime television variety program for the ABC and a tour supporting the legendary Debbie Reynolds, providing a valuable apprenticeship in show business and star quality. In this first instalment of a two-part conversation with Simon Gallagher, he describes a youth filled with music and song and the path that led him to the national stage. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this joyous conversation with master entertainer Simon Gallagher. Someone knocked on the door of my dressing room. Ten minutes, Mr. Gallagher, the show starts soon. I hope my hair's okay and my bow tie's on straight. Hey, where's my cigarettes? Ah, oh, well, he'll just have to wait. I've got a show to do. And everyone, just be my guest. I've got a show to do tonight. I want everything to be right. You may as well say, I know it's true. I want everything to be right for you. I want to see you smile. Simon Gallagher, lovely to have you on this episode of Stages. Oh, it's great to be here at long last. <laughs> at long last. <laughs> We've been talking for a while. Now, Simon, your career is a career that has uh, many opening nights. Do you have a ritual that you go through on, a, on an opening night, whether you're a performer or a producer? Yes, it's generally, why did I do this? <laughs> why am I here? And um, I remember saying to a dresser of mine on an opening night and you're sort of standing there and I was almost in a trance really and he's dressing me and I said, 
you know, very, it's very much like going off to the executioner. <laughs> and being, the only thing that you're not given is a blindfold. Um, but that's the way I've always felt about them. I don't don't enjoy them. I can't wait for them to be over. Well, there's a lot of pressure associated with them, isn't there? It's um, finally the, the birthing process is complete. Um, it, it's being served up there for an audience to have their their response. And and as certainly if uh, if you're a producer, you've got a lot riding on it financially. Oh, that's right. And you know that that's also the night where um, the critical eyes are upon you. So yeah, as I always have my heart in my mouth. Did you uh, read reviews as a, as a performer? Did you take oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Always curious? Think, well, <clears throat> I don't think uh, sometimes people make the mistake and I'll just read the good ones. But, yeah. you know, that's living in a false heaven. So I think if you read any reviews, you have to read them all. And, you know, generally, providing they're constructive, you can glean something from them, even if they're critical. Yeah. Now, your life and career seems pretty much Queensland-focused presently. Would I be right in saying that? <clears throat> in some respects, yes. Uh, I'm certainly born uh, there in Brisbane and still live in Queensland. But most of my professional work stemmed from Sydney and Melbourne. And in those days, you're talking uh, mid to late 70s, Queensland was still, you know, the outbush, <laughs> you know, the old country, the big country town, and nobody came from Queensland if they wanted to be a, a national entertainer. But it wasn't until I started to do some work at um, for the Nine Network for Walsh and also Don Lane that um, th they were pressuring me, oh, you've got to move to, to Sydney. And then it was, oh, you've got to move to Melbourne. And it was, my response was always, no, I don't. I want to live, live here. I said, do you realise, of course, you fly people backwards and forwards from Sydney and Melbourne all the time. And the, uh, the cost and the distance to go Brisbane to Sydney is exactly the same. So I was cheeky enough to say to the Nine Network, I want you to fly me and I will stay where I am. And they did. How, Otherwise, how I probably would have had to have, gone and you know, at least had a base in Sydney for a time and then a lot of my work was in was in Melbourne so the same thing probably would have happened if I wasn't if I didn't stick to my gun. What do you love about your home state Queensland? Oh the weather. Yeah. <laughs> That's a reason um, to, to stay entrenched. And of course all all that time ago and even right through the 80s and the 90s I could get a, a better quality of life for my buck yeah. than I could by going and buying up in Sydney. So I'm always, I've always been a homebody when I am at home. So uh, it was that too. You attended the Anglican Church Grammar School. Was yes, there a lot of... Churchy. Churchy? Was there a lot of yeah. music uh, education? Yes, there was. Choirs uh, and bands? I got, uh, yes, <clears throat> and uh, musicals. When I was 12, I started at um, Churchy. And I lucked in with the most fantastic music master, head of music there, and also a, a brand new headmaster who was very into the arts and was promoting it uh, aggressively. So very quickly, I you know, ensconced myself in, um, in the music area. Oh, some new friends that I'd made said, oh, we're going up to the music school today because they're auditioning for the music, musical. I went, oh, right, great, okay. So off I went, and they were all hoping they'd get a part in the chorus, and uh, I went and sang, and he gave me um, one of the uh, minor principal roles uh, in my very first musical, which was called The Pirates of Penzance. You're joking. Really? No. And, and that no. was, of course, the, the show which sort of uh, uh, introduced you to the professional musical theatre. Yes. Um, <clears throat> little did I realise, of course, but, you know, it was going to um, really guide me through a lot of my life. There was a twist with that show, however. Churchy was an all-boys school, and in the early 70s, it was tradition that all boys had to play all parts. And I was only a boy soprano still at that time. 
And uh, so consequently, I was one of Major General Stanley's daughters. <laughs> you didn't give us your Mabel. Were you Edith or? Kate. Kate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it was also because Kate was a um, contralto, perhaps, or a mezzo, and um, I had had a lot of um, primary school experience in choral singing, so uh, I could hold a part. So that's why they thought, right, we'll put him on that part. Simon could always hold a good part in a in a choir, <laughs> and loved it. When did you first sit down at a piano? At the age of three. Um, <clears throat> well, probably earlier than that, but um, I was playing by the age of three. A bit of a you know child prodigy, I guess, but. It was all by accident and um, my parents encouraged me to just sit there and, and muck around where so many people are worried that their child might hurt this delicate instrument. So they're always told, don't touch, don't go near it. So I guess by the time a child then is told by their parents, well, now it's time you're going to learn the piano. You go, the what? You mean that thing I've never been allowed to touch? whereas my parents were saying, oh, just sit there and muck around. And luckily I had a terrific ear for music. So anything that was played to me, I could immediately play out on the piano. Wow. So at three years of age, I was playing for the kids to march into kindergarten. And then by the beginning of primary school, <clears throat> it was always just a, one of my, just my own little secret until there was the piano somewhere and I'd go to it like a magnet. So there I was in early primary school and this music teacher was agog and she said, how can you do that? I said, oh, I don't know, I just do it. She said, are you, are you learning? I said, no. And um, so she, she hauled my mother over the coals and said, this boy needs to be taught and taught immediately. <laughs> so... That's how it happened. So it was a musical household, I imagine, if your folks are encouraging doodling at the piano. and Are they singers uh, yeah. or performers? No, they're not. Uh, my mother was a chorister in the country town of Toowoomba, um, but just, you know, like every other young lady in, in, the, in the municipal choir. Uh, my father is a doctor um, of medicine, and um, but he's... He plays piano and still does at 93, but it was all just for, you know, development. So we did everything as kids. We were, we were sent out to learn musical instruments. We were sent out to do sporting activities. They just they wanted out their children to have a very all-round experience of education. So who was your first piano teacher? Oh, my first piano teacher... <clears throat> was a funny little old lady who was as about, about as wide as she was tall, uh, very stout, and she'd wear a lot of um, twee coats and skirts, very Margaret Rutherford and um, <laughs> Miss Marple. And her name was Eva Lang, and she was a character. She, uh, she also lived across the road from a big Anglican church and she'd go off there and, and play every Sunday morning. But she taught me, in, uh, as well as another young friend um, who I didn't know at that time, a fellow called Geoffrey Black, as, uh, an opera singer. And we'd go off to Miss Lang and do our, our lessons and then a Steadford's and Amy B exams and go right through. And I stayed with her until high school. And then um, there was another uh, lady called Sue Thompson, and she was teaching at the school. So I didn't have to sort of trek across the city any longer to go and see Miss Lang. I could just have the lesson after school. And uh, she was the wife of the, uh, the head of the Queensland Opera Company. So she was very into singing. And she then came to see me in some of these school musicals. And by now I was nearing the end of my, um, my education, my, my high school education. And uh, 
she said, what are you going to do when you leave school? And I said, oh, I don't, I'm not really sure. She said, well, what about the conservatorium? And I said, well, I don't want to be a concert pianist and I don't believe I'm good enough to be one or dedicated enough to be one. She said, no, 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 as a singer. She said, you've got a wonderful voice. And she said, I know that they will take singers of uh, your standard and based, basing it on uh, the promise that you have. Um, so that's how I auditioned and got into the conservatorium. And it was an absolute, uh, it was, a, it was an a revelation to me that, oh, my God, I'd never even thought about that. And so off I trekked to, um, to university. Were you entering um, other thoughts of a career, perhaps medicine like your dad? or, or was... oh, That was always the thing that I was um, adamant that I would not do. Right. Um, and, of course, it's this thing when you go to school, everybody used to say, all your teachers would say, oh, well, of course, you're going to go up and be a doctor like your father. And I immediately used to say, no, I'm not. But I did have a... Um, I did have a pang at one point to, to be a vet. And uh, so my father organised with one of his uh, veterinarian mates for me to go and do some work experience during the school holidays. And I was quickly turned off being a vet after seeing that most things in those days that they did in a suburban vet surgery was either to de-sex animals or to put good animals or ones who've passed their use-by date, put them to sleep. And I thought, oh, this isn't what I wanted to do at all. No, no. <laughs> Very naive, though. All I wanted to do was cuddle animals. <laughs> <laughs> That's what vets do. Yeah. <laughs> now, as well as the musicals at school, other performance experience, I believe you had a gig uh, hosting a TV show at, at 15. Yes, I did. That was, it came about because I, I ran the, the school's media department. It was very ahead of its time. They were running reel-to-reel um, uh, -reel, uh, video recorders, Ampex recorders in the school and put it all into closed-circuit television so every classroom had a, um, a TV. And from there... Uh, they would record a lot of the shows from the ABC school programs and then they would play them back on demand. It's a sort of well, like we're doing nowadays, yeah. but this was in 1973 or something, and they would have all of these programs and they could run many of them simultaneously into various classrooms. They also, instead of a school magazine, they had a school um, television program called the Churchy News, and so I was involved in producing that, presenting that, and then the, um, the local uh, reverend uh, came to the school and spoke to the headmaster and said, now, we're doing this uh, Anglican religious program on the Seven Network. You know, in those days they had to have so much religious content yep. to, as part of their licence. So the Anglicans had a go, one go a month and um, they said, we, we want to sort of freshen this up and we'd like one of the young churchy boys to read the Anglican news. So I got the call because I was heading the, the department there uh, and got the call to come up to the head and, and speak about it. And he said, uh, would you be interested? And I said, oh, too right, I would. That would be great. Uh, basically because it meant a day off school. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so then I, you know, I, I tried to up to the, to the uh, television station, BTQ7 in Brisbane, and I'd never been into a, a TV station before. And I was there sitting in the makeup chair with the makeup lady saying, and what do you want to do when you leave school? And I'm just looking around and saying, oh, get into TV. <laughs> <laughs> Little did you know. Whereupon, yeah, whereupon she said, oh, well, they're actually auditioning for the children's show today. So how about I take you up and you can meet the producer? So, oh, okay. So off I went, did the screen test that day when I was off there really supposed to be reading the Anglican news and um, long story short, got the job. 
so then I this was live to air. I don't think the station had a videotape recorder on, on the premises. It was all done with Telecity in those days on film, otherwise live to air. So the television show was live to air five days a week from four o'clock in the afternoon. So I was in a cab from at the end of school being whisked over to the television station, changing my clothes and then saying, hello, boys and girls, welcome, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I did that for a couple of years and my father was the one who, the wise old owl who said, and he'd said originally, you can't do this show. You're not, I won't let you do it because it'll interfere with your schooling. I, I begged and pleaded and finally he, you know, relented. And um, so there I was, but my school marks did suffer terribly. And he then said to me, what are you going to do in nine months' time when your school schooling comes to an end? I said, oh, I'm going to stay in TV. <laughs> and he said, oh, really? What about the co-host that used to do the show with you who got the sack one Friday afternoon on the spot and was told never to um, set foot on the station again? They could do that to you tomorrow. And I suddenly a penny dropped with me and I thought, He's right. I better go and pull my finger out and fix my grades or something and, and try to get into university. Get something to fall back so, on. Oh, that were the words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were the words. But what a terrific apprenticeship you were having. Working to a live yes. TV. True. However, <clears throat> at 15 through to the age of 17, I originally thought it was just a bit of a, a lark and a bit of fun, but quickly realised that the, the game of commercial television wasn't a game, it was business. And it was all based around ratings, of course. And we were up against Jackie McDonald on, on Channel 9 across the road. And uh, so we were fight, fight, fighting. And these executives were, were very stressed all the time about ratings. And, and they sort of imparted that anxiety, I guess, over to me. And so I suddenly became extraordinarily stressed about, about this and what's going to happen and blah, blah, blah. And then I've got my father in my ear going, you know, could end tomorrow. So I finally was brave enough and said, okay, that's it, no more. Um, I'm going back to school because they were also... Uh, pressuring me to leave school because they wanted me to do a lot of admin for the program prior to going to air. And I said, I'm not leaving school. So um, anyway, it all turned out for the best, thank heavens. And it was the same station that then gave me my very first singing uh, gig. Um, I debuted on a, on a nighttime variety show at Channel 7. Uh, so we were all good pals and uh, luckily it led to this new part of my life. I know it won't be easy I don't expect the world I only want a life to call my own Making my own decisions Making my own mistakes
When, when do you start becoming a piano man, you know, sitting and singing at a piano? When I was a broke university student, uh, a lot of the kids had done the, the education ele um, elective as well, and they took a, a, a scholarship from the government, which bonded them to, to the state government for teaching for, I don't know, three, four years after you came out of your uh, graduation. So I chose I didn't want to do that because I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But consequently, no scholarship, no money. So there you are, you know, living hand to mouth, living at home. Uh, but, you know, can I have 20 bucks, Dad? You know, can I, I need petrol for the car and all of those things. And a friend of mine found out that there was a, the best pub in town, those days called the Crest Hotel, was looking for a piano player to work in this bar that they were going to turn into a piano bar. So I went and auditioned at uni five days a week. It was a fairly um, rigorous course. And then at 5.30 in the afternoon, I'd sit up at the piano in the piano bar and start playing away through 10 o'clock at night. Uh, and I started as only playing piano. I went to the manager and said, look, I also do a bit of singing. Do you think I could do a bit of that as well? He said, oh, yeah, I suppose so. And that's really where the piano bar started to take off because there was a piano man sitting and singing and playing. And from a deserted bar, it turned into, you know, the bar of, of the town. And four years later, I was still there. And I was still there when I started off doing my um, gigs down south. What were the frequent requests? You know, piano man, of course. Well, of course, in those days, I'm talking 1976, 77, uh, you, I was playing Elton John and um, Billy Joel and some Peter Allen. Uh, so you know, in that, at that time, that was all very contemporary music. It wasn't nostalgic music as, as such, but the nostalgic um, material also was there, which in those days, of course, was Berlin, Cole Porter, um, all of that sort of music. So uh, you always get the request as, oh, you know, play it again, Sam. And uh, <laughs> as time goes by. It's not Sam, it's Simon. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Or melancholy baby. <laughs> I think around 1977, you're also, as a youngster, starting to take your first steps as a producer in promoting your own career uh, on the concert platform. Yes, well, no, nobody else would. And I thought, well, uh, there was this beautiful theatre in this newly built conservatorium that was sitting there, brand spanking new, and nobody was using it. All they'd use it for was choir practice. And so I, I walked around and I thought, wow, what you could do here. So I first saw him and said, I'd like to put on a show. Would that be all right? He said, a show? What sort of show? I said, oh, uh, I thought we could get a, a group of the students together and, and just put something on. Now, uh, he said, oh, yeah, maybe. He said, what would you do? And on, off the top of my head, I said, um, an evening of Gilbert and Sullivan. And uh, he said, oh, okay. So I, I set off. We started to, to organise this. Uh, the first half was excerpts from various Gilbert and Sullivans. And I was an, a GNS nut, really. I used to love all of them. So, you know, I was in heaven to think I could put on a, an evening of GNS. Uh, and then the second half was uh, a fully staged version of Trial by Jury. So I was, was in those. I did a couple of items in the first half and then played the defendant in Trial by Jury. But the way along was such a learning curve because the Conservatorium's theatre was in its infancy. No one knew how to sell a ticket. Um, so I went to Her Majesty's Theatre in Brisbane and got them to put the tickets on sale. 
Then I went to the university with the University of Queensland with a friend of mine who, who was there and we, I learned how to screen print posters. And, uh, and then it was, uh, I did everything uh, up to sweeping the floor of the stage. So from that moment on, I had a, a, a larger grasp of what it was in putting on a show. It wasn't just getting out there on the opening night going, ta-da. There was a lot of stuff involved. There was scenery, there were costumes. And uh, so I, I sort of developed this, I suppose, vocabulary of, of knowing, you know, what to do where. Uh, and very shortly after that, I then thought, okay, well, I've got this following at the piano bar. I think I'll put myself on in concert at the Conservatorium Theatre. So I did. So it was it was called Brisbane's Own Piano Man in concert, <laughs> except I didn't <laughs> I didn't screen print the posters. Somebody else did, and it came back and it said they they misspelt the word piano and they flipped the A and the I. So I was Brisbane's own Pano man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> the um, the waltz show. Now that came about. Yeah. I understand through a singing competition. Yes, going back to once again being a full time student at the conservatorium, they they had a new course of uh, jazz. And they had a 16-track a professional recording studio. And somebody just opened this door literally in the corridor one day as I was walking past, and I went, what's that? And it was this huge recording studio and fantastic big desks. And so I said to somebody, how do you get in there? And they said, oh, you've just got to have a good reason and they'll uh, let you in and do something. I said, like what? I said, oh, well, uh, do you write any songs? And I said, I'm going to write a song, <laughs> which I did. Wrote a song just to get into the studio to, to muck around and then learnt on my feet how the, uh, the techniques of recording worked. And, you know, I multi-tracked my own voice. We, we overdubbed and I was learning all of this stuff for the very first time. And once again, it was going to stand me in very good stead for when my real recording career took off. Um, anyway, I made the recording and I was thrilled and took the tape home and put it in the top drawer and it sat there until uh, a colleague of mine at, um, at the con said, there's a song contest being held on the Mike Walsh show. And I, I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, I've recorded a song. I'm going to send it in. And I said, I'll do the same. So off I did, off I went. And I, <clears throat> I wrote uh, a letter to accompany the, the tape saying that I was a student at the conservatorium and they had asked for you to nominate an Australian performer of your choice if your song was chosen. Um, you know, Marsha Hines, Johnny Farnham, all of these sort of people. And uh, I was cheeky enough to say, this is my voice on the recording and I'm studying full-time music and if my song was chosen, I would love to perform it myself. See, there was method in my madness because I knew from my earlier television experience that you didn't just front up at a TV station and go, hello, I want you to put me on TV. Um, so you had to sort of you know, get yourself in there. And I thought this way, if, if, if a million to one chance was to ever pay off, I would get my face on national television. And lo and behold, that's what happened. Um, my song was chosen. And the first person to find out about it was my father, that I knew, was my father. Because some someone came into his surgery and said, "I've just heard on the Mike Walsh show that your son is in the song contest." So he then tells me, and I go, "What?" So off I went to Sydney for the song contest and got my face on the on the screen as was the plan. Uh, flew back to Brisbane the same day. The next day they announced the results and the winner wasn't me. Oh. 
and I didn't expect it for a moment. However, the uh, Mike Walsh then came on and the, the head of the judging panel was a fellow called Ross Barlow, who headed up Polygram, Polyador Records. And uh, Walsh said, oh, now, Ross has also got some other news we'd like to, you'd like to share. So I'm watching all of this on the couch at my parents' house, sitting next to my nana, having a sandwich. And uh, Ross Barlow comes on and says, oh, yes, well, apart from the winner, we're also very impressed with this young fellow from Brisbane, Simon Gallagher, and we're going to offer him a three-year recording contract. Well, you know, even when I hear it now, it's like, this is a dream. This is amazing. And I looked at my nana and went, oh, <laughs> And then Walsh comes back onto the screen and immediately says, oh, yes, well, you'll be seeing a lot more of Simon because he's also now going to be a regular on the Mike Walsh show. So all of this was a, a revelation. Uh, and I thought, I'm made. This is it. <laughs> Little did I realise that the hard work hadn't even started. Isn't that extraordinary that you learned that information through, through live television? There was nobody sort of sussing you out first or...? negotiating no. anything no no so it was after that episode had gone to air that i rang the station uh, um, and then spoke to to them there and um spoke to walsh and uh, um realized that this is a huge opportunity and i was only two-thirds of the way through my music degree but made the the difficult decision to defer and give this new thing a go. It um, it pays to have some balls, doesn't it? And sort of that chutzpah and say, no, don't. I'm going to sing it. Um, yeah. <laughs> it could have gone. Well, I in thought a... that was that was my greatest attribute, rather than that silly song I'd written. It was my first attempt at songwriting. Hopefully, I got better. Yeah. <laughs> How long did you do the Walsh show? Because you were a, oh, a regular right. for a long time. Oh yes, I was then contracted to to them uh, and paid a uh, a salary, and would appear at least once a fortnight, sometimes once a week, um, all the way through until Walsh handed over to Ray Martin. Right. And a, a concert career is developing at that stage too, with the profile and and your recording contract. Well, yes, with all of this news and me. Want, needing to defer my studies, I felt very important and needed. I thought I needed to go out and buy a telephone answering machine, very posh. And so I installed this, thinking, all right, now let's see what happens. <laughs> I came home from uni one day and the light was flashing. I went, oh, a message. Now, to give you a background, my... My mother's brother is called Donald McDonald, who was a solicitor. Anyway, so on this funny, scratchy old answering machine, it says, Hello, Simon, this is Donald McDonald here, and I'm wanting to ring you and ask you to come on tour with Debbie Reynolds. And I went, oh, Uncle Don, you <laughs> stupid idiot. Anyway, so I'm listening more, and he says, I'm at AGC Paradine in Sydney, and this is the number to call me back. Now, of course, it wasn't my uncle. It was Donald MacDonald who then ran Australian Opera, uh, Sydney Theatre Company, chairman of the ABC. And at that point, he was heading up this, this uh, company called AGC Paradine. And thereupon uh, was my almost my very first gig. Um, and I went to Mike Walsh, not knowing what to do or say, and I said, what do, what do I do about this? He said, you've been offered what? I said, to, to go on tour with Debbie Reynolds. He said, oh, that's fantastic. He said, I know, Donald. I'll take him out to lunch. So he did. And uh, I had to ring. I was staying at the Siebel townhouse, I think, and I remember making the call to, to Walsh afterwards. I said, how did it go? And he said, well, I've got you, what was it, $4,000 a week uh, on, on tour. And this is in 1978 and for a kid who was still at 
uni, 4,000 bucks a week was a lot of money. And, I, and he said, I think Donald fainted at the table, but anyway, he agrees. <laughs> and uh, luckily, because of this concert that I had done in Brisbane, and I'd put on myself, Brisbane's own Pano man, um, <laughs> I had a, acquired a lot of charts, music charts for big band. So I was immediately able to say, well, I've got a full show, and which is fully scored. Uh, so it once again... The, the early things that I had done stood me in very good stead for the, the things that were coming along. What do you learn from somebody like Debbie Reynolds? Everything. Everything. She was extraordinary. Um, we started out, you know, she, she was used to, she told me, to having what they call an opening act, being a comedian or instrumentalist. And normally a star of her stature would not have a singer before them. So she, she said to me, I've got to come in here and do vocal warm-ups, thanks to you. And, um, and anyway, I then noticed after the second night or so that she was standing in the wings as I came off stage. And, and she'd be clapping her hands and say, great, great, good. And then I'd come off after taking a bow and then she'd say, are you staying to watch my show? I said, oh, of course I am. She said, good. And then we'll go back to the hotel, we'll have a glass of wine, we'll have a chat. And that turned into a habit every night after the show. But the other thing that also um, became a regular event was that normally when your opening act is working, uh, She's got her hairdressers and wardrobe people backstage making her up, getting her ready for the big entrance. Anyway, she instructed them that she wanted to come in early to the theatre, get made up first, because I want to watch Simon. And she would stand there. If I'm playing the piano and looking out here to the audience, there she was in eye, in eye shot, directly in the, in the front wing, just watching with her hands folded perhaps in a dressing gown and turban. Um, and after a few nights, the stage crew got the hint and they gave her a chair. Uh, and at the end of the Sydney season, by this stage, we'd become great pals. And she'd, had in, she'd imparted so much knowledge and information. And she'd say things like, now, my friend, Jimmy Durante, he plays the piano. And he, I said, she said, you need a, a showy number. You know, you can stand up rather than just being planted at the keyboard all the time. Stand up and play a bit. She says, you know that old song, I Love a Piano? And uh, I said, oh, yeah. So we put it in the act and it brought the house down because there's this young kid playing this sort of razzmatazz, honky-tonk, I Love a Piano, um, and uh, they loved it. I love a piano. I love a piano I love to hear somebody play Upon a piano A grand piano It simply carries me away I know a fine way It's Frida Steinway I love to run my fingers over the key I've arisen with the pedal I love the metal Not only music from Broadway I'm so delighted if I'm invited To hear a long-haired genius play So you can keep your fiddle And you'll both give me a piano I love to stop for right Metal. 
things like that and stagecraft one night I'd go off after my set and go into the wings with her I was in a white tail suit and uh, I was about to turn around she said that was great that was great and I would turn around and go back to take my curtain call and she grabbed me by the tailcoat and she said no not yet and then she timed it as the applause and then she said now and uh, Off I went. She gave me a lot of personal advice too. Um, She said, find your friends now. She said, you're going to be a star. Find your friends now and keep them for the rest of your life because you'll always know that they're your friends rather than hangers on. And I thought, well, that was good advice. On the last night in Sydney, uh, I took the opportunity to thank Debbie in front of the audience. I said, this has been the most amazing experience of my life to work with this incredible lady and I thank her from the bottom of my heart. Whereupon she walked out on stage in her dressing gown and turban (laughs) and waved to the audience and gave me the hugest hug and kiss and walked off. This is before she made her huge star entrance as the legendary Debbie Reynolds. She'd come out and sort of, you know, jumped across the the footlights in a sense to just be Debbie standing in the wings. And uh, I'll never forget it. What an experience. What a privilege. What a joy. Yeah, yeah. You're the youngest entertainer to score your own show on the ABC, the Simon Gallagher Show. Yeah. That came about essentially in in a funny sort of way, you know, I was signed to Polygram Records because EMI had Mark Holden and Ross Barlow wanted his own Mark Holden and I seemed to be the one who fitted that bill. Uh, And then the same thing happened at the ABC. Michael Shrimpton, uh, producer, who had produced Countdown amongst very many other things, he was hoping to do some specials with Mark Holden. And that all had evaporated and Mark had gone off to America and that was the end of that. Uh, and then this little fella popped up and so he, he spied me and firstly I was engaged to do some specials. I did, I did an Australia Day live special for them. Um, I did a Christmas special and then a, a stint with um, James Pegler who was a a singer of the day, and little did I know that they were actually testing me out to see whether or not I could hold my own show. So with the James Pegler show, for instance, they got me to introduce a segment and talk about this and that, and suddenly they offered me um, my own series. So that was an incredible feat, and these were the days when ABC didn't understand budgeting. (laughs) (laughs) so no expense was spared you know symphony orchestras dancing girls sets a real music variety show it wasn't a talk show every number was a big production number and it took a week to make one episode that were golden years of entertainment with uh, television variety sadly missed now um yeah yeah very much so do you think there's room for variety or it could return to television or it's a we're in a completely different climate now. 
Well, you know, I think we've seen variety in different ways. I think when we see things like um, even The Masked Singer, um, uh, things like The Voice, you know, there's a huge amount of production va value and cost that goes into doing that sort of show. But that's the bottom line of it, I think. It's the cost of, of doing it when you've got orchestras and sets and costumes and, and a huge amount of uh, production time and studio time that it, uh, it has to be a huge winner, uh, otherwise it's just not worth their while. But as you say, they were golden days. And uh, as I was very lucky that I was able to sort of flip and flop. I was still working for the Nine Network and as well as doing my own TV show at the time. Luckily for me, my TV show was going in the, in the can, so to speak, and being stored and, and replayed six months later. Um, but whilst I was doing that, I was still doing Walsh, I was still doing Don Lane, uh, and I was still working live. You know, the, the live entertainment, the live concerts that I was doing by then were incredibly prolific. Um, so I was working my little backside off. Join us next time for part two of The Stages Conversation with showman Simon Gallagher. He describes his arrival on the musical theatre stage in a succession of celebrated roles that include Frederick in The Pirates of Penzance, Freddie Ainsford Hill in My Fair Lady and The Wizard of Oz in Wicked. He also recounts the evolution of SG Entertainment, his production company that, among many entertainments, has given us the Gilbert and Sullivan trilogy of Pirates of Penzance, The Mikado and HMS Pinafore. That's next time on The Stages Podcast. I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you then. <laughs>